Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. An interview with Claire Cronin. <laughs> Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. Uh, today we have another exciting interview. Uh, but before we introduce our guest, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, uh, John. I'm sorry, co-ghost. I think that's the first time I've actually said the, the right word. I've said co-host. Absolutely fail on this. Um, but how's it going, John? I am very excited. Super excited. It's, it's the most spookiest time of the year. And um, what a great way to celebrate. Right. And we are, we are celebrating with our, I think the first musician we've ever had on the show, Claire Cronin. How's it going, Claire? Good. I mean, not, not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good with, just, right. with just a giant, like moon-sized yeah. oral caveat at the end of it. I mean, I'm yeah, still alive, still, still hanging in. Right. And you've got, you've got an upcoming book, which I think by the time this episode is out, your book will be out. So you have a book that just released today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited about the book. Um, Blue Light of the Screen on Horror, Ghosts and God. Um, sort of a memoir of my obsession with the horror genre that I have been working on for the past, like, I don't know, five or six years. So it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad that it's finally going to be released. Nice. Yeah, we we, we both uh, finished reading your book in the last couple of days, and it's just absolutely phenomenal. I really, really love it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, but if you could, if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself, about your background. Sure. Um, mostly I'm a musician and a writer. I've been sort of hiding out in academia for the past uh, seven years of like doing an MFA and then a PhD and lots of teaching. Um, though now I have a regular job and I'm just trying to keep writing and making music on top of it. Um, but my background is very cross-disciplinary. Um, I did a lot of performance art in my twenties and have done music throughout, have released a few records, done some touring, um, and was mostly a poet before I started this project and then shifted into writing this kind of, you know, weird form of nonfiction that's very informed by philosophy and theory and academic uh, writing, but also by um, ghost stories and, and sort of poetic experiments. Nice. I think the, the, the poetry background definitely comes out in the book in a really positive way. Cool. Well, just out of curiosity, uh, what was your what was your PhD? It was in English, um, but it was at the University of Georgia, which has a creative writing focus. So, all the coursework was the same um, same comprehensive exams, and I was mostly doing twentieth century American poetry. But then your dissertation could be a creative work with a long, uh, separate critical mm -hmm. paper. So this. A, an earlier version of this book was my dissertation, which is oh cool. Why I got to have the luxury of spending so many hours on it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's always it's always good to hear about someone else's weird path through academia because I know we're all like we're all relatively we're haunted all, academics over here. So yeah, we're all finding a way. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was a um, great excuse to research, um, you know, all, like kind of anything that interested me that would that ended up in this book. It, for all, all of its faults aside, if, if academia is good for anything, it's giving people an excuse to research weird stuff that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or at least it would be harder to do otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so on the topic of your music, uh, where where can we where can we find and support your work besides the upcoming release from repeaterbooks.com? Well, um, I have links to things on my website, uh, mm. which is just my name. Um, but my last record came out through Arundel Records, so you could go on their website. Um, and the one before that was on Bada Bing. Um, I'm working on a new record right now that's like oh, totally, cool. totally recorded from home during the lockdown. <laughs> nice. um, so that might take a year to come out in its final form. But it's, I mean, it's all on Bandcamp and on Spotify. Nice. nice. Now, all, all of those relevant links will, of course, be in the notes for this episode. So please do check them out. And I think there's, a, was Big Dread Moon your last album? Yeah. Nice. Okay, that's that's the one I really liked. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. So moving, move, moving into the book. Um, I guess the the first thing that we wanted to ask you about was the art and the art style of of the the sketches and the drawings that kind of appear throughout the work. Sure. Um, well, I was. I mean, I've always just been doing a bunch of different kinds of art and not really committing to one identity. But I was an art major in college and did a little a lot of visual art growing up. Um, so I think I. You know, I had, I learned how to draw, but then I think my skills just, I sort of stopped caring about learning more. And so I feel like there's a quality to my illustrations that's almost like a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I like zines and I like graphic novels and um, I kind of liked that look anyway. Um, And the drawings were made mostly while watching horror movies and TV shows um, or like listening to spooky podcasts. So kind of like thinking while drawing um, some of it is like, some of it is capturing a scene from a film or like a screenshot. Um, And then sometimes I'm sort of changing what's appearing in the image. Uh, But the Mm. book is so much about images and like what an image is and this kind of, visual studies way, but also in a personal way. Um, so it just felt natural to put illustrations in it. Yeah, that's definitely, it's definitely comes off as a really natural pairing when you read the book, they go really well together. Cool. Um, and there is, there is something of like a, I don't know, I'm just going to call it youthful exuberance about the <laughs> yeah. sketches. Like it definitely has that like teenage vibe to it. And I really enjoyed that. I mean, it was, yeah, it was pleasurable to draw them and then, when I was like editing the final version of the book and scanning them in, it was not pleasurable because I had done such a bad job of like archivally preserving them. (laughs) Some of the images were like three years old and I had just drawn them all with like the cheapest possible pen that had turned brown. Um, The paper was all dirty. I had to do so much stuff in Photoshop after just to like fix them. 
That, that definitely sounds like the classic zine experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why didn't I just like do this in a normal way from the beginning? Right. It's like, oh man, I wish 15 years ago I was thinking about an archival project I'd be doing today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always in the back of like, like I, I guess that's a that's a good like metatextual haunting then, right? Like our own past is a ghost that follows us. Definitely. Um, I, I, I Oh, I did want to ask you just one specific question about the artwork. So there's something like almost spectral about it, right? Like none none of the lines are sturdy. Everything is layered, right? There's mm-hmm. this depth and movement to it. Was that something that you were either intentionally going for or intentionally aware of when you were putting this project together? Because there's almost like a, a there's a spectral quality to the way that you draw. I mean, it's, it's good to hear that. Um... I wasn't, this is how I draw anyway, but so I think, uh, but I do think there's an anxiety in all that cross-hatching and line work. Um, yeah, so that's, I'm glad it had that effect. Nice. But it, yeah, I wasn't, uh, I don't really have another way that I know <laughs> how to draw. <laughs> so that was pretty much what it could be. <laughs> It's uh, convenient in the best way possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, John, do you have any questions about the art, or uh, we can go on to uh, music? Well, yeah. Let's let's talk about um, Big Dread Moon. I was I was listening to it as I was rereading the book uh, this afternoon, um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about about the album and the kind of themes and influences that went into producing mm-hmm. it um and and yeah really what what you what you would like people to take from it sure um i mean there's an overlap in in the years when i was working on this project and when i wrote most of those songs and definitely when i recorded them and and released the record so i was you know at that point the book was like just in its beginning stages Um, so I was just doing a ton of reading of like the theoretical things that form the basis of some of, of some of the book, um, about images and, and death and photography and mourning and a lot of film theory. Um, and I was watching a lot of horror movies sort of as always, but with a little bit more of a studious lens, um, and just taking lots of notes and then it just came out in the lyrics. Um, so definitely not on purpose. Uh, but uh, I mean, when I wrote the book, I think in my in my creative writing in literature, I am very intentional about what I'm trying to do after the period in the beginning where you're trying to figure it out. Um, and I feel like it takes my whole brain to kind of like come to the page and like string a coherent sentence together but when I'm writing songs it's um it's much more like trying to not know what I'm doing and just let the song come out but of course it's like the same the same kinds of themes and images are occurring in both this book and in Big Dread Moon especially so there's a I mean there's just a lot there's a lot of images of horror in there and kind of a mood of horror in the record that's both personal and based on everything that I was reading and watching. It was, uh, it's, it's been like incredibly gray 
um rainy weather basically like rainstorms mm. here today so i was i i was having an incredibly gothic afternoon because i was sat by the window uh reading your book and listening to the album whilst <laughs> nothing but rain lashed down <laughs> outside and it was sort of like i i i had you know woken up in a daphne de maurier novel or something yeah. you know that I was in this kind of crumbling my the the building that my apartment is in is really old and is falling to pieces mm-hmm. uh so our apartment has loads of leaks in it <laughs> you know the house is leaking and there's <laughs> it was it was an amazing it was amazing uh we're gonna link to your band camp obviously in the show notes um the whole album is uh just incredible thank you uh personal favorite tracks uh tourniquet and saints lake are both my personal faves but that's, I, I encourage all of the listeners to check it out as well Ooh, we got it we got we got some overlap there because i would go for saints lake and wolfman <laughs> also i would go for that sea glass green vinyl lp available at bandcamp.com i saw that and i'm like this is so there's such good connective tissue between the art uh the music and the writing right there's such this good like this subtle and faint haunting that kind of permeates all of this work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the, even, even like the little things, like the choice of a sea glass, like, you know, like vinyl LP, there's something in that color that's really haunting. It's almost like paint blue in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was drawn to that. Nice. So um, I guess unless there's any more questions, John, about the music, we can, we can finally get into the meat of the interview and start talking about the book uh yeah let's 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 talk about the book i think that seems like a good idea that's what we're all here for (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah if if you could really quickly just um i know we've been talking about the book on and off but uh just kind of introduce the book to our listeners i guess sure um blue light of the screen it's uh i mean it's kind of it's a memoir of an obsession more than a regular memoir uh it began as a project reflecting on why I'm obsessed with horror um, and in particular with ghost stories and supernatural horror. And I was, you know, drawing on some sort of theoretical explanations from film studies and psychology to answer that. And then I just couldn't stop writing about my own life. So the book ended up really being about family and depression um, and Catholicism, which is a large part of my family background. Um, So kind of connecting or like realizing through writing the book that my obsession with these stories about ghosts and demons is really just deeply rooted in um, the worldview that I was brought up within, uh, which is like a very superstitious kind of Catholicism. And also that these stories reflect um, something I've always struggled with, which is, you know, depression and despair and kind of existential questions um surrounding that uh brilliant yeah it is um it's a kind of endlessly fascinating book uh in my opinion um uh, and maybe we can start by talking a little bit about you've mentioned this kind of tangentially already um as we've been talking but maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the sort of philosophical influences that are at work in the book because it is a it is a it's a memoir of sorts but it's also um a kind of rigorously argued and very philosophically sophisticated account 
of um, of a whole lot of things, which I think we'll get into. But maybe we can start by talking about who are the kind of key thinkers that you want to put into conversation uh, with everything else that's happening in the book? Sure. Um, I think I was drawing mostly from from a long list of authors that were in the interdisciplinary realm of visual studies or visual culture. Um, so thinking back to theories of the photographic image and then theories of film, um, but particularly ones that are talking about kind of psychological experience or things that overlap with the supernatural, like, you know, the photograph as being death-like because it's capturing a moment, um, of real life in the past and sort of freezing it and mummifying it. And then how, when that turns into film, um, film is reanimating these dead frozen images. So it's a bit like some kind of necromancy. Um, and then extending that into more recent work about digital images and screen culture and living in a world that's so mediated by screens that everything begins to feel very virtual. Um, so I read a lot of theory in, in that sort of visual studies realm. Um, there's also a lot of psycho, psychoanalysis, though it's not, um, I mean, I'm not always taking it at face value. Um, I think I like, I like the most gothic parts of, of Freud. <laughs> <laughs> I like to read Freud like it's gothic literature. I, I think that is, uh, in fact, the correct and appropriate way to treat psychoanalysis. <laughs> yeah, so. I think so. <laughs> and then yeah. there's, there's horror studies, which is um, kind of an emerging field within film studies. But, you know, going back to like Noel, Noel Carroll and his definitions of what horror is. Um, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of other horror theory I've read that I didn't put in the book because it didn't feel relevant to what I was talking about. But um, yeah, o overlapping all of that, this, the stuff that's sort of like Catholic theology is like not very dogmatic. It's mostly sort of fringe things that have come to me um, through my mom. <laughs> 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 um, and there's, yeah, I, so I would say it's mostly, it's mostly in the realm of visual studies. I, I think all this stuff works brilliantly together uh, when we when we get to like the final product that is the book. Um, I, I, for one, was thrilled to see like Mark Fisher, Guy Debord, Andre Bazin, like that stuff yeah. was just like every, every time I saw like any of these names pop up, I was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is a there's a kind of like uh, what has now become like the horror vanguard meme, which is that on almost every episode, um, either I will mention Mark Fisher <laughs> Or Ash will talk about the Situationist International and Guy Debord. Mm -hmm. So, okay. so this like, book that was kind of tailor made for both of us. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, that stuff was that stuff was just fantastic to see. And I really like, I really like this focus on uh, the physicality of of film. Right, like you've got um, you know Bazin talking about how it embalms time, mm -hmm. and then you've got like you know, like the blue light, this titular blue light, right? Mm -hmm. Like I love that passage in there where you're talking about the the blue light keeping you awake at night. Mm -hmm. And it's just so, it, it tethers so well to this idea of like, you know, like hauntings, like the the kind of like, uh, 
I guess, like folk beliefs around the color blue and ghosts mm-hmm. and like how we mediate our lives through technology and all of these like phantasmal interactions over social media and through screens. So it winds up coming together just so strongly. Thank you. Um, I guess where, as we get into the kind of the book itself, there is, there is a quote that I wanted to kind of uh, read as like a starting point. Mm-hmm for for discussion so you write horror fans are often asked to explain why to people who don't like or understand the genre to offer an apologia there are many reasons many theories as specific and as varied as the horror subgenres that viewers pledge allegiance to the pleasure of a thrill the appeal of what's taboo personal or cultural catharsis the comic camp absurd but I've always felt haunted, um, which I really love. I really love as an apologia, mm-hmm. as apologetics for yeah. horror, uh, to use the appropriate theological term. So I guess maybe a, a kind of good jumping off point is just to the, you, you kind of put forward this idea that a kind of basic sort of ontological condition of existence you know, this existential quality of horror is that we are all in some degree haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see as the relationship between the blue light of the now almost universal and inescapable screen and that basic existential truth that haunting is is a kind of shared condition. Hmm. Well... I mean, to connect it to the blue light, I think I, I think it's has never been clear to me how much my feeling of being haunted is specific to me as an individual versus um, something that's broadly shared. But it definitely is existential, and I, you know, I think the questions in the book or the feelings in the book are very old. Like thinking about mortality, wondering what happens after you die, like worrying about God, um, trying to define what evil is. Like these are like very ancient questions. Um, but we're in a situation that is, uh, that is so technologically mediated, which I don't think is necessarily good or bad. Um, but it does, I've had the experience of it kind of confusing me in terms of, um, I don't know, just the virtual experience of, of these screens and what seems possible through this kind of like living as a brain in front of a computer. Um, when the truth is that we're, you know, we're still embodied, we get sick and die, which is, you know, has never been more obvious than now, perhaps. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I think there's a lot of cultural fantasies which were stronger before coronavirus hit, um, especially in this sort of optimistic tech world of California where I live, um, about like once we have the right technology and we're using certain forms of AI, we can just extend our intelligence so far and extend our lives so long if, if we're the few people that are extremely rich and well connected that we can sort of do away with the problems of death and suffering. Um, And I think the idea of a ghost kind of comes back to refuse that wish or to even like 
to even suggest that there's something like sinister or wrong about wishing that. Um, so that's sort of a, a contemporary thing that I feel like we're haunted by, like ghosts of ghosts of a possible future and ghosts of the past. Um, but then it's just, I mean, I feel haunted by just, just the regular existential stuff. Um, <laughs> you know, what is the meaning of all of this? What am I doing here? Um, mm, the is, classics. Is anyone up in the clouds listening to me? <laughs> Does that make sense? Or do you, did you have your own thoughts about, um, about that connection? I think that totally makes sense. Uh, what about you, John? Yeah, I I completely agree. And like you, I'm I kind of look at this techno utopianism that sees kind of human finitude and our contingency as like a, an inconvenience to be overcome yeah. with with better. Oh, if we have the right app, maybe we can <laughs> defeat our own physical embodiment. Right. Um, I see that as kind of like. Uh, I feel very conflicted about it because <clears throat> I actually think um, it, it ties inherently back to, to philosophy, right? You know, Montaigne says that to philosophize is to learn how to die. Mm -hmm. um, because if you don't examine your life, if you don't, to use the kind of Socratic way of putting it, if you don't uh, allow for the possibility of becoming a different sort of person, then you're basically calling this this idea of like, all that there will be is the present extended mm. and perfected yeah. is, is kind of horrifying. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think for me, that's the thing that really stands out is there's this like gross materiality about it. Like, why would you want 2020 eternally? Oh you know, God. like if, if I, if like a wizard or, or like a, a you know, Silicon Valley uh, a billionaire was like, you could live forever, but you're always going to be you who you are now today in 2020. Like that is such like a Sisyphean curse. Horrible, <laughs> yeah. And you could just keep working. <laughs> oh yeah. And then that's, that's the, that's the unspoken thing, right? Is that like, yeah, if we all live forever, we're all going to live forever as like line cooks at <laughs> space McDonald's or something. It's not going to be a worthwhile eternity. Right. Yeah, yeah, just a, a, an eternal present worshiping God Emperor Elon Musk. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine anything worse. And that's yeah. like, I think to to tie this back to hauntings and ghosts, right? This is such such an attempt to create a world that's devoid of the spectral, mm -hmm. right? It wants to ch chase out all possible ghosts, right? Like the the Fisherian ghosts of uh, lost futures, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the Deridian ghosts that are kind of stuck out of time, like chase out all specters and leave nothing but an eternal present. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrifying. <laughs> and I also um, had some comment about it in the book, but I really like Jeffrey Sconce's book, Haunted Media, um, which is kind of about like, you know, since since 1840s telegraphy, whenever we have a new communication technology, people tend to react to it with like very intense spiritual fears and hopes. And one of the most common reactions is that like thinking the telegraph or the telephone or the TV can somehow connect you to the dead um, and that we can finally talk to the other side. And so you have like these anecdotes about Thomas Edison, like trying to make mm -hmm. a special phone to talk to ghosts. 
And so this is like a pattern throughout human history, like something about like when we're confronted with these invisible electronic technologies that are making things happen and, you know, simultaneously from like a great distance far away, um, we think about the spiritual, but in these newest technologies, I mean, I'm speaking very broadly here, but, uh, the fact that these sort of tech utopianists are not, it's not even crossing their minds to think about communicating with the other side because there's a belief that there just is nothing else except this like living human world is like very disturbing to me. Like instead of thinking about, oh, we can reach, you know, our beloved dad who we miss so much, um, the feeling is just, okay, I can just keep living forever and avoid, avoid death myself. Absolutely. I think um, it's something that that kind of like sparked in my mind was this idea that like, even even when these kind of uh, metaphysical concepts creep into the, the techno utopian visions of a future, they're always rematerialized mm -hmm. and, and kind of mediated through crass materialism. And it's like you, you turn beliefs in any kind of spiritual connection into like, Oh, this, this is, this is just, uh, like, um, you know, like dopamine levels, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, heart rate. Like it's just, you can, you can go into an oxygen tent and, you know, uh, inject yourself with whatever mixture of stuff that, you know, Silicon Valley is into yeah. this week and like have a, a spiritual encounter on the same plane as someone who's trying to achieve a spiritual encounter. Right. Like there's something, there, there's, there's something about this that they're like so desperately clawing after things offered by, uh, you know, like non-material sources, mm. but they can't escape their fundamental fear of dying and, right. and having a world where they could be not there. Yeah. And it just stands in such uh, contrast to, to what feels like, you know, not only the massive death that's happening right now because of the pandemic, but also like the ecological destruction, like the yeah. death that's just going to keep coming, um, you know, year after year into the next decades. Like it's not the only people who could possibly get out of that are like the, you know, the wealthiest and the most technologically um, connected, but even there, like there's no, you know, you're still going to die. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, it kind of reminds me of, of something Be uh, Benjamin writes in the uh, thesis on the philosophy of history, you know, <clears throat> written, written in the rise of, in the wake of the rise of fascism, where he's talking about like, what's the function of the historian, mm. um, which is to both kind of protect and, and um, salvage the messianic potential of history, because, um, you know, we confront an enemy that, as he puts it, not even the dead will be safe. Mm. Not even the dead will be safe if 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 you're if if our opponents yeah. win. And, and you know, you think about this idea of like how uh, even death is no longer the end for a celebrity. If you're famous enough, you'll be, you, you know, <clears throat> there'll be a new kind of necromancy right. that will bring you back back to like fucking sell carpets or something. <laughs> I, and it's like this 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 ghoulish kind of plundering of the past. Yeah. But, but not for any of those kind of messianic or revolutionary purposes, but simply just to kind of go, 
let's keep what we have now, but just forever. Right. Yeah, just to use it. Yeah, I should read that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've, I've been reading a lot of Benjamin lately, and uh, theses on the philosophy of history. Super short, really good. Um, very weird, <laughs> but in the best yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> that seems good. Given that we've been talking about um, kind of cancelled futures and uh, the weird and kind of hauntings, I feel like uh, we should probably talk about uh, Mark Fisher and how you understand this book as kind of relating to, to his work and maybe kind of building on it and expanding it in new directions. I mean, I haven't, uh, I will confess that I haven't read everything Mark Fisher has written. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, neither, neither have I. <laughs> that, I mean, that K-Punk collection is like yeah. 1200 pages long. I, it's yeah, fine. <laughs> I've looked through it. I've looked through pages of it, but not the entire, not front to back. Um, but I'm, I find his writing moving because it combines, um, you know, a theoretical approach to, objects and culture, but also like something that's very personal and emotional. Um, and of course I identify with the kind of like depressive perspective. Um, and I, yeah, I thought I liked the weird and the eerie. It gave me a lot to think about. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's something, yeah, something about, something about how his approaches is very intelligent, but it's also casual um, and personal that I think spoke to me. Yeah, his, his, his writing's also like for for a kind of cultural philosopher, um, for lack of a better phrase, his, his writing is deeply personal. Yeah. You know, like like things like Ghosts of My Life is, is yeah. almost as much of an autobiography as it is a work on cultural criticism. And I think... You know, in in a lot of respects, your um, your latest book is kind of taking that and and driving it even further forward, right? It's 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 having a lot of these same cultural criticisms and these ideas, but it's incorporating personal artwork, personal poetry, um, a lot of personal anecdotes and stories, and it's really kind of investing yourself into the criticism and to the commentary. Yeah, I was interested in doing that. I mean, especially because I was a PhD student while I was writing it. And I would read, would read a lot of theory from different fields. Um, and some of it is so beautifully written, um, some philosophy. But I always wondered like, okay, well, what did they actually believe? Like, especially when I would read, like one of my areas within studying poetry was occult and mystical poetry. And I became kind of obsessed with like, well, like, you know, how much was like Yates actually practicing magic? Like, did he have any powers? Like, what did he, you know, like, what did he, what did he really believe he was doing? Was this all a pose um, or like Rilke? And then these people who dedicated their lives to writing academically about, you know, very obscure supernatural subjects, like talking about occult poets. I just, uh, I always wanted there to be a confession uh, within their, within their like theoretical monographs or articles. 
and it was so rare that I would find one. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, you're not supposed to do that in like a scholarly book. Like there's, there's yeah. not really room for it. And that's just not, that's not the genre. Um, but I, I, like, I love Camera Lucida, um, which felt like a very personal book that was also theory. Um, so yeah, I was trying to write in that vein. I think, I think it works out really well. Um, and again, like this all, I mean, like maybe this is because like uh, haunting and ontology and like all of these like uh, spooky theoretical frameworks are my jam, but like mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's something that's kind of like embracing ghosts about this. Right. Because when you, one of, one of, I think my biggest criticisms of academia, and I know a lot of people share this one is that like when you try and write the way that academia wants you to write, dry, devoid of personality and mm -hmm. completely objective. It's it's an attempt to exercise your own spirit from your writing. Right. And it's it's also impossible, right? Like you can't you it's a double bind. You're being asked to do something that no one is capable of doing. You know, when the 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 true way to get through this one is just to be honest when when you're trying to craft an academic text mm -hmm. and that involves having your personality in there and I think works like like yours and Mark Fisher's have like a really interesting way of trying to strike that balance in what is largely uncharted territory. Yeah. I mean, I like, sometimes I would come across um, a book or an article from like, I don't know, the fifties, the 1950s or earlier when it seems like it was a bit looser about how you could write <laughs> academically. And I was like, this Just is a bit. great. This is like so stylish. Like, you know, he's making like all kinds of like huge claims, just like hot take after hot take. Like this is really fun to read instead of like the very carefully constructed right. way that, you know, you need to write to be taken seriously, et cetera. But um, yeah, something is definitely lost. Yeah. You know, you can read about, you know, academics in, in the twenties who would their field research would be going off to do mescaline and writing about their their vision trips that they go on. And you go, yeah, that would never get through peer right. review now. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine the ethics board having fun with that one. <laughs> Definitely, I like that. <laughs> are you, are you, um, is your academic training in philosophy for both of you? Or what are your uh, John, you go first. What? <laughs> uh, I, my PhD is in um, horror and theology. Oh, wow. Um, so I was very happy reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm starting a new research project, which is, ex which is on how horror changes religious belief, um, which maybe we can yeah, get into in a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so, like, obviously, our background both both of us have do do loads of film studies mm -hmm. as well. Um, Ash, uh, yeah, I have a ma I have a master's in Gothic studies. I feel like I'm being interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> the tables have turned, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I've I've uh, I've been hunting uh, for a way. I was in a PhD program uh, for a while, but it just didn't financially work out. And I've been uh, clawing my way back into academia for yeah. uh, the last couple of years. Cool. But yeah, film studies, gothic studies, you know, like this is this is great stuff. We uh sorry, Ash, do you wanna do you wanna kind of take the next section? 
Oh yeah. Where are we up to in our notes? I believe we are. We're so professional. I know we're so so good at this. <laughs> uh, we're up to uh, point C. Mm. Cool. Uh, so, uh, like like specters. Specters are philosophically interesting, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you know, like like the the idea of of hauntings and spectrality is kind of all over theory, right? You've got. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, like specters of Marx, you know, you've got hauntology as its own pseudo field in a mm-hmm. way. Um, all of Mark Fisher's writing is is so indebted to, to a lot of these concepts and ideas. So so how do you see kind of uh, the specters haunting the contemporary moment? How do I see the specters haunting the contemporary moment? Yes, it's a very, very academically mm. question right there. Um, what do we, what are we like, haunted by? Like in a, hmm, what are we haunted by? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if this is an answer to your question, but I, it's really been so miserable. <laughs> And, and frightening the whole year and uh we've been Rich. in a pretty strict lockdown since march um in in the bay area in california um and i i mean i think all of those theories of spectrality are interesting and i spent a long time reading about them and i, and I consider them in the book um but i have been mostly thinking about like real ghosts and and real death um kind of like i was saying before but uh i i'm uh there's just something about the pressure of the moment with coronavirus and with our like horrifying political situation that i just feel mostly haunted by by actual death and (laughs) (laughs) and and wondering about you know, the dead and these people that are putting their bodies on the line. Um, and thinking about, thinking about ancestors that live through times of war or other times of political oppression. Um, and what, you know, wondering what deaths are still to come in the future. So it's not a very theoretical, not a very theoretical feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but still still a really good answer and yeah i definitely i mean i'm in a part of the country that's had no meaningful mask or response to covid oh, right like wow. no, no defensible mask rules like it's just uh plague nightmare land and like oh, the you really feel the immediacy of like just just the sheer scale and and the scope of of what's going on today it's like i i feel that like sure mainstream media is never going to be able to acknowledge or like actually contextualize what death on the scale is like but i think it's 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 in the air it's in our blood it's in the way that everyone's interacting with each other lately and whether that's like you know people people are becoming frantic and and more open than they were before in the past Mm. or something right or like all these different responses but i think like it's definitely something that has I guess for lack of a better word, possessed us. Yeah. But there's like so much uh, denial of it too. Oh yeah. And if, I mean, if I was living in Georgia still, 
like that is Athens has not had a great time with the lockdown because of the politics there. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, uh, you know, it almost makes you feel like you're insane or you're being like gas, gaslit, gaslighted by like everyone around you when you go to a place and no one's wearing a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Am I like extremely paranoid? Like, is this like not a real threat? There, there is this. Oh, you could go on. But it's just, uh, I mean, I'm uh, every day my brain hurts thinking about the like conspiracy theories and misinformation uh, in America and the wider world right now, and how it's how it's intersecting with like all of this death, all of this like hate, these hate groups. I mean, I just. You know, think thinking about weird beliefs in the book, um, I had a little more aesthetic distance from it when I was writing it, but it's now like feels like an emergency. Like, yeah, <laughs> what's happening? Yeah, and it's um, definitely something spectral about this. It's very, it's it's like we're living through like a mask of the red death turn of the screw crossover where there's this horrible plague but some people refuse to believe its existence and they'll they'll tell you it's not there right and a lot of these like conspiracy conspiracy beliefs are being spread you know through media because people are not because the internet is inherently evil or something but because people are like for whatever reasons cannot discern or do not want to be able to discern like what is good information and what is not. And they're just becoming like radicalized into completely insane beliefs. Right. And this, I think this ties back to like that uh, academic problem, if you will, that we were talking about earlier, where it's like we were trying to live in a world that has exercised our, our own, our own ghost, the ghost that is us. And like, so you've got media that's like, oh, we have to hear both sides of the story. We can't, we can't have any personal critique or commentary. Everybody's ideas are on the same playing field. Right. So you'll, you'll interview like a doctor who's like, please, for the love of God, wear a mask. And then you'll interview some like internet forum <laughs> conspiracy weirdo who's talking about how all birds are robots. Yeah. And <laughs> there's, there's, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just makes me think of there's this great quote by um, Richard Gilman Opalski. He says that um, ghosts are normal. What's truly paranormal is to meet someone who says they don't believe in them at all. Mm. Uh, and this idea that there is a kind of mass disavowal, I think, is really true. It's it's um, it's pretty politically influential over here in the UK as well. This idea that actually, you yeah. know, it's not serious. Every, this kind of screaming, desperate litany that everything's fine. Everything should just go back to normal. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really kind of powerful idea because it involves concealing the, the kind of like the, the horrible truth about something like, uh virology about a pandemic which is that for all of you know all of us hate to be reminded of our own bodily fragility um and so i do i i kind of i don't condone obviously but i absolutely kind of get the impulse to just disavow to kind of push it away to repress it but you know if we know anything about the gothic if we know anything about horror Mm -hmm. it's that repression only takes you so far and it 
always comes right. back. What, what is like the one thing that ghosts can't stand is when you ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, definitely. Most haunted here. Right. It, it, it almost feels like we're living in like that interstitial space between Ghostbusters 1 where the entire world really realizes that the afterlife exists and ghosts are real and they can affect the physical world and it's like there's a fundamental revolution of the way that human society exists and can be organized. And then somewhere between that and Ghostbusters 2, everybody forgets that ghosts are real and goes back to normal life. And I feel that like <laughs> we're, we're somehow in that pocket, right? We're at this like point where we're realizing that every, every aspect of our society was not prepared for what we're facing. And that, that in, in a large respect, we're witnessing something on that level and then I have such this worry that like five years from now, we'll all be back to like paying our taxes and talking about how much we hate our day jobs and, and just kind of shuffling about again, like the right. world collapsing just a few years beforehand. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine that that's possible, but um, yeah, it just, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's the, there's the real ghost or just the idea of a ghost because of all this death, but also like just the ghosts of history and historical mm. lessons. It feels like we are completely ignoring and have not learned. And it's such a time of reckoning in America um, with our own history and just the ego of a, of being such a young country, you know, thinking that we're so great um, is all, yeah, it's all completely collapsing. Um, so yeah, so not learning from history and, and and things that we know are going to happen, such as like more ecological destruction, more global warming, uh, more pandemics in the future <laughs> after this one. Uh, we, I mean, if people can't recognize that, then I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It is like it is like being in Ghostbusters and like denying that <laughs> these huge glowing monsters are not actually there. Right. No, it's fine. We should reopen the economy. No, yeah. Ignore the ignore Slimer. Yeah, the library right. is safe. Ignore, ignore the 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 sixty story tall marshmallow man who's <laughs> ravaging the country. We right. have to open the Starbucks. Right. <laughs> but I think I think this gets us on to, to something else we wanted to talk about um, in your book because the whole book is like uh, th throughout the whole book there's these little snippets that are just short descriptions of horror movies. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really like those and especially how they pair with the text that's around them and kind of like recap what you just read. Um, really, really like insightful and engaging. And it's like making me think about horror movies in new ways, which is something that's like possibly my favorite thing to do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I think we, we wanted to talk about like kind of horror and trauma and, and catharsis because horror is weirdly on it's it's on both sides of these things right like horror is simultaneously the the cause of and a potential solution to like overwhelming dread yeah 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 like what are your what are your thoughts it is you're right it is it is between those two things um i mean i think i think there is a meaningful difference though it's something i trouble over in the book between fictional horror, watching a horror movie, um, which I and other horror fans get pleasure out of. Um, and then like the real horrors of your life or of the world, which are traumatizing. <laughs> uh, 
Um, <laughs> there's something about watching like fictional horror um, that can be cathartic uh, mm-hmm. or a way to distract you from real horrors or even to think through them, um, kind of like test out the feelings or watch other people go through maybe something that's worse than what you're going through. Um, I mean, it depends on the film and the subgenre, but I think there is something, yeah, I think there's something cathartic about the horror genre just inherently. Um, I found it really interesting when you were talking about in the book, the relationship between horror and grief. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, like Ash, that really made me kind of pause and think about uh, the show, uh, think about the podcast that we do. Cause we have a lot of fun doing, doing the show. Um, but it's like, if we accept, and I think it's certainly compelling this idea that actually a horror and grief are these intimately bound up affective modes of production as it were. And I, I think the example of hereditary, mm-hmm. for example, you know, is, a, is basically a film about mm-hmm. grief, but is also, it's also a really fun horror right. movie. Yeah. It's also a Paymon. <laughs> yeah. It's also about, it's about literal demons <laughs> and a demon king, <laughs> which, which is, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and so I do think there is, I think you kind of like draw out the complexities of that relation, uh, that relationship between something which is cathartic and joyous and, uh, you know, something that we do as our, as our kind of hobby, but also is bound up in ways of dealing with the kind of existential price of existing as it Mm -hmm. were. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the ghost story or supernatural genre is almost always about grief in some way, just because you're talking about uh, death and things from the past coming back. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general horror, even in, even in more silly films, there's, I feel like there's something about grief that you could always read into it. Um, all the violence is like, you know, leads to loss, which leads to grief, even if it's like a, uh, you know, kind of fun slasher film or zombie film or something. Mm. Um, yeah, but I think like in hereditary, I thought that was such a powerful movie and I loved how it, how it twists at the end to be this kind of happy ending for the demon King (laughs) and this turn towards like the explicitly supernatural. And I think if it didn't have that, it would be like a really powerful, messed up, disturbing, dark drama, which would still be good, but I would be, I would be less thrilled to watch it. (laughs) Um, So maybe I need, you know, maybe you need some combination of a kind of a wild fantastical element and, uh, and the real human emotions of, of grief or violence or, or whatever it is. And that's why, that's why horror is compelling and entertaining. I think that, um, there's something in your book that this, this reminds me of, and that's, um, um, and this will, this will lead us on to the next section too, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, where we talk about religion. But um, it's interior mortifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, that section where um, the opening line is, 
To pray for the poor souls is to recommend yourself to God and the dead as a worthy, worthy vessel for suffering. And like, I, I phenomenally loved, I think interior mortifications might've been my favorite section uh, out of the whole book. And I really liked the book a lot. <laughs> so, um, but, but there is this kind of like, there, there, there's a somber hopefulness to the ghost story, right? Because, you know, with the, with the classic condition of the ghost is that they have a, a problem from their living lives that they have yet to resolve. There, there, is, there is something that has wounded them that has upset their eternal rest. But there's the, the implication in that is that there's, there, there's a solution. There's a, there's, a, there's a cure, in quotes, right? There's a way to, to take on their pain as, as some kind of vehicle for healing. And I think there's, uh, you know, something powerful to that. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, I feel grateful to have grown up with that idea. Um, even though, you know, even though there are, there are dangers in that too, in like trying to bring more suffering upon yourself because you think it has a spiritual value, but mm -hmm. it's so counter to kind of mainstream positive self-help culture to say, um, that your suffering is valuable um, and that you want, you, you want to unite with the sufferings of other people, whether they're alive or dead. Um, yeah. And, and sort of like, and there is something hopeful and life affirming in that, even though it's like a very sort of Gothic and gloomy um, attitude, it's not like some kind of ecstatic prayer where you're building yourself up and, um, feeling energized. It's like, it's aligning yourself with the dead or with the suffering. And on a kind of like, uh, exp more explicitly non-religious way of thinking about it, there's some parallels there with stuff like Enzo Traverso's book on, uh, left-wing melancholia, mm -hmm. where he kind of talks about this idea of how, aligning and understanding the kind of defeats of any radical or revolutionary politics in the past is not necessarily just a depressive activity yeah. you know it's it's putting yourself into conversation with a, with an ongoing historical uh discourse or movement or struggle and actually kind of taking some responsibility for the continuation of that you know, not every failure of, of, of revolution is, is final because it always kind of has these historical echoes and it's passed on and it's continued. Yeah. I like that. I do. I do think it, yeah, I do think it could lead to a good, um, politics. I, I tend to agree that, uh, ghosts and hauntings and spooky things lead to good politics. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is basically why we started doing this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, so, so I guess um, to to as a way to, as a way to work ourselves out of talking uh, about the book or to to complete the interview. Uh, so, so the book the book is a lot to do with with religion and your your personal experiences with religion. Uh, and so, one of the questions we wanted to ask you and get your thoughts on is uh, is horror an inherently religious mode of experience? Um, yeah, I think you could make that argument. I think definitely supernatural horror is, um, and in, you know, it's different in different eras and different countries. And I'm mostly talking about Hollywood films. 
Um, but I mm-hmm. think there's a extremely strong religious undercurrent to a lot of the horror that's being produced in America. Um, and it's like, I mean, I connect that with sort of like melodrama as a genre or a mode, which is like, there's still a belief, however hidden that the world is morally legible and that we can know who the good person is and who the bad person is. And in horror, like that's even more explicit when you have like actual demonic beings that are evil and influencing things. Um, and so I think, you know, those are kind of, uh, those are kind of Christian values that are embedded in there, even if the film itself, uh, acts sort of secular or the characters in the film, like, you know, claim to not believe in the supernatural, or maybe they don't even turn. I mean, there are some exceptions, like I, like a film like The Conjuring or Insidious or these kind of mainstream um, ghost movies, I think are just fit perfectly into this melodramatic and kind of um, subtly or not so subtly Christian. <laughs> <laughs> but then something like Hereditary was interesting to me because it's um, like God is never mentioned. Like there's no scene where they try to get an exorcist or they even like, like yep. there's this, you know, there's this evil spiritualist who's actually like part of the satanic cult, but, um, but there's no, it's just like, it's like secular, secular, secular. And then it's like a demon. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, like, I think I read oh, what's, there's like this Catholic site that reviews movies and it's like labels them morally offensive sometimes. And I think they, they, or a site like them had like a really positive review of hereditary because it was sort of like, well, this is what happened. God. Well, you were warned. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I did not, I did not have hereditary pegged for Catholic propaganda, but that's great. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not as obvious as the exorcist, but. (laughs) (laughs) Not subtle. that, That movie is anything but subtle. Yeah. (laughs) But I think there's a distinction here, right. Between the various kinds of religious discourses which are formative on the american cultural imagination generally right so you have i mean obviously the big one is the exorcist but there is this definite strand strand of like uh heterodox weird Mm -hmm. catholicism Mm -hmm. uh and at the same time there is also a very kind of almost like super calvinistic theology that runs through some of these horror films and horror kind of grabs from both simultaneously so you mean like with a calvinist one it would be like some people are just doomed and that's it yeah yeah there's nothing yeah that's true i hadn't thought about that um and it's and it's kind of interesting if you think of like historically a lot of american culture has been pretty anti-catholic for for a while you know they're, they're a kind of suspicious outsider but like the roots of American horror in things like Nathaniel Hawthorne and uh, Jonathan Edwards sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, which is like super annihilationist Mm -hmm. language. It's like, here is all of the torture that's waiting for you. If you don't Mm -hmm. repent, it's it's very goth and very angsty. Yeah. (laughs) It's super angsty, but it's also, it's also the the kind of Calvinist idea is that like the physical world is ultimately deceptive. And you don't see that 
as kind of explicitly as you used to but it's like you can never trust in in some ways i think invasion of the body snatchers is a good example of this it's like you know beautiful american suburbia but underneath it there's this kind of horrifying reality yeah. to it yeah that's a good point so, i guess i guess what i wanted to ask is 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 if 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 horror is kind of inherently religious does that make religion inherently horrific in some way um yeah i mean there's i you know i've like i don't know every religion like what kind of claims they could make but it certainly deals with like questions about horror um suffering violence evil death um and if there and there's it depends on the tradition but there's you know the idea that god is um unknowable and terrifying and that language would fail um if you encountered god um i think there's this gothic sense of of terror and awe being combined and that's maybe that's not there in like your typical friendly sunday sermon but i think that's there if you go into more like mystical um threads within these traditions yeah, like uh, Catholic mystical theology or like apophatic theology where it's like you can only talk in the negative yeah. because language itself kind of collapses. Right. Makes me think makes me think of the end of um, Liam Gavin's A Dark Song. Yeah, oh, I love that film. Um, precisely because that's exactly what happens, right? It's, it's, there is... And at least it's it's very apparently very accurate as well in the abramal yeah ritual. it seemed i mean based on what i've what I've read about, <laughs> about <laughs> magic <laughs> um it did seem really accurate but yeah, I would agree there is a kind of if you're talking about if you're talking about horror and you're talking about uh what it feels like to go through horror or to experience horror even if that's only a horror that's mediated by a screen, mm -hmm. you are in some way kind of touching on religious questions. Yeah. yeah I mean, I don't know. It's hard to separate my own um, experience and just sort of like mindset or nature or whatever from what other people feel when they watch horror. Um, like I, I feel like the dominant way of talking about horror, not maybe with people that are like working on new theories of horror studies right now, but in the way it's sort of like taught in undergrad classrooms, uh, is just to like simplify everything down to like, what is this movie reflecting about society? Um, <laughs> you know, in kind of the most superficial way. And like, is this progressive or is this conservative and like if they kill this character it means they hate you know cheerleaders or whatever <laughs> um, and that's like so boring to me um as like agreed as any kind of like limited political analysis or understanding of a genre um and so like i i think i tend to think about horror movies in a in a sort of religious way, or I also am choosing horror movies that lend themselves to that reading. Um, 
but there are probably other ways to to conceive of it too. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. This idea that, and what I really like, what I really like about about the book is that it underscores really clearly and really powerfully that there is not a contradiction between thinking through things um, from drawing on these kind of religious ideas or theological ideas and thinking with like uh, cultural history or film studies or um, psychoanalysis. And that actually is a really productive uh, set of tensions and intersections that don't have to be reduced to, you know, is this movie good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or is it bad? (laughs) There there are so much more interesting and powerful and useful conversations to have beyond these, beyond the good or bad, obviously. And then even these, these surface readings are so self-limiting. Yeah. Because they're, they're all unnuanced binaries, right? Like a a movie, a horror movie either has to be pro or anti cheerleader. Right. Right. There's no, there's no room for uh, nuance and twists and turns and what, what even pro cheerleader means. I really love how that's like our synecdoche for any kind of political conversation. (laughs) Seems like a safe uh, figure. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think um, it's been it's been a solid interview. Uh, thank you, thank you very much yeah. for coming on the show. Uh, and of course, we encourage everybody, uh, you know, find find Claire Cronin's uh, work on Bandcamp. Go buy the book on Repeater Books. It's a fantastic read. Um, but as as we go out, um, the way we always uh, uh, want to, um, what are your favorite uh, horror movies, books, musicians? Wow. Um... I don't know. Or just stuff you've really been liking lately. I mean, I was trying to think of recent horror that I've liked. And I, uh, I I really, I was like trying to dig up any other seventies sort of ghost horror things I hadn't seen. My only new discovery was the haunting of Julia, um, which has Mia Farrow in it. Um, I think it's British. And also the Sentinel, which is like really silly um, about (laughs) a model who moves into an apartment building. That's like a portal to hell. Um, There's some weird Catholic stuff in there. Uh, Does that have Kiefer Sutherland in it? Uh, I don't even remember. Maybe. Uh, I might, I might be thinking of something else. It's okay. (laughs) I always, yeah. I keep mixing that one up with the entity, which I'm too afraid to see. Um, so like something about the images i don't know yeah they look the same in my mind um i liked the lodge which i was probably the last Mm. movie i saw in theaters before lockdown and then i there's this small um smaller ghost film called the witch in the window that i watched on on amazon or shutter or something um that was a very sweet sort of almost sentimental ghost story um kind of old-fashioned but it was i thought it was really good and i'm watching that new hbo show with jude law the third day which is feels very like wicker man-ish Ooh, always good to get some wicker man vibes yeah yeah i don't know yeah i like ghost films maybe my favorite one is the others 
I don't know about horror music. I mean, I've listened to plenty of sort of goth stuff and like dark ambient as kind of like background. Um, but mostly I like, uh, I like kind of like folk singer songwriters and the darkness is just emotional as opposed to like explicitly. <laughs> I mean, with, with it was so much of folk, like the darkness is just there by default. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of those old folk songs are, have pretty scary lyrics actually. Oh yeah. Um, yep. Totally. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for answering all of our weird questions. Yeah, this has been a great conversation. Agreed. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 